0: Have both elementary kids, a class, and our, our nursery and pre-K children, an option. Again, all in a way that is safe. And so you'll you'll have some more details coming out this week. But we we just want to say we'll do whatever it takes to meet together in a way that both helps us to, to fellowship as God's people, but also in a way that that furthers getting us through uh, this awkward and and strange season of coronavirus. We want to both. Love God and love others. We believe these are our inseparable commands of the gospel. But today we'll be turning to Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you have a Bible with you or you want to read along on our screen uh, or a favorite app, turn to Nehemiah 8. And just want to remind everybody that we're in the book of Nehemiah, first of all, because it's just God's word. And in 2 Timothy 3, we read that all scripture is profitable for God's people. All of it. ...even Leviticus, and I think especially Leviticus if you've never read it. But Nehemiah is a wonderful book that tells us this story of how God's people... ...were being led by this man by the name of Nehemiah... ...under the the power of the Spirit to rebuild the walls... ...but even more so the city of Jerusalem. And we've seen that we've made it through halfway of this book... ...and the walls have already been rebuilt. So we're talking now about how rebuilding is so much more important... ...than just setting up the safety measures that we need to be God's people but it means reclaiming the purpose that we have as God's people, which ultimately, as we saw last week, is worship. But we have to understand that worship is not merely something we do on a Sunday morning. Worship is all of life. It includes us gathering together as God's people, but it ultimately means us scattering together and going to be living sacrifices for the glory of God and the good of the world. And so we continue to see this in Nehemiah chapter 8. So, read with me, Nehemiah chapter 8. And the, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, and on his right hand, on his right hand, that is, and Padiah, Mishal, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbanada, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bonash, Sherebiah, Jamin, Acab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites. helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy branches to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. For the days of Joshua, for from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to the day the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day from the first day to the last day he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seventh days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As we read of the great reverence and rejoicing that it provoked in your people, we ask that that would happen today by your Spirit. Father, we know apart from your Spirit, we will just see or hear words. So we express our need of you. God, we acknowledge that you are with us. Attune our hearts to what you want to do. Wield the word, God, today, that we might be convicted and comforted, that we might be changed for your glory, that we might know the truth, and the truth would set us free. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. From meth man to muscle man, a guy that I knew at one point who had lived a life of, of extreme addiction to meth, all of a sudden had this great reformation. And a part of this reformation was attributed, of course, to to an encounter with Jesus Christ. But as you looked at his life, you've begun to see that that all of this energy, all of this zeal, all of this this sort of nature for for over-the-top extreme reactions and responses to life began to be redirected into his physical exercise and exploits. And this man that at one point went from literally wrecking his family, his life, and his friendships ended up losing his family and his life and his friendships even though he made this massive and in many ways wonderful reformation. How did this happen? What well, happened because as he sought to rebuild his life, even though he did away with this source that had brought such destruction, he rebuilt it on a flimsy foundation. He actually found other more functional gods to give him this sense of life, but it wasn't the life to the full that Jesus said that he came to give. When Jesus said the enemy comes to, to seek, to kill and destroy, but I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, so often the enemy is so willing to clean up our lives, but not bring us to Christ. To bring in good goals that become bad gods, that cause us to have an external reformation that has missed out on the internal restoration. What we see taking place in the book of Nehemiah is that there can be no true reformation if there is not a genuine spiritual renewal. Reformation without renewal in the end is just as empty. And every one of us, especially this guy right here, are all pulled towards these false foundations for reformation and renewal in our lives. They look better. And in many ways they are better. It is better to be in great shape than to be hooked on methamphetamines. But the enemy is content. Content, if he can't destroy us, to deflect us from the fullness of life that Jesus has called us to. There's all kinds of replacements that aren't renewal. All kinds of replacements that will get the applause of the world. Get the assistance of the flesh. And sometimes religion can be the biggest one. And I'm using the term religion here, I know in a negative sense, and I know it has a positive use as well. And I'm talking in particular of Christian religion. And when I'm using the term religion in its negative sense, is I'm talking about a system of, of Christianity that you find out what do I need to do so that, I can, so that I can be better, so that I can be accepted, so that I can have this self-righteousness that I am justified before God in the world based on me meeting a certain set of requirements. And what can so happen is it begins to give you this same fix that your false gospel gods gave you. Oftentimes, it can be used in service. Okay, you you at the at the heart of your desire for your drug of choice or your addiction of choice or your bad. There's an idol there at work. For some people, it's approval. I didn't get approved of, and I need to numb it some way. Well, guess where you can go and work your butt off and get approval? The church. Some of us, it's that performance idol. We want to be the best. Where can you go and perform and find people say, yes, you're a great person because you do all the right things. For some of us, it's control. For others of us, it's comfort. And I think the temptation is, particularly in a church like ours, that is calling people to everyday discipleship. And sometimes in the history of these, these current times, The word radical is used. And a radical religion can be the most prone to be used as a false foundation for rebuilding our life because there's a lot you can do. There's a lot that you can find approval in. But you're not really abiding in the vine. You're not really living out of a renewed heart that has found that the joy of the Lord is my strength. And you will end up burnt out, maybe more broken, and maybe more disillusioned. It won't last, and you'll end up empty, and in the end, you'll blame God. I've been tempted towards all these things in my life, where I'm angry at God, and I have to step back and say, why were you doing this in the first place? The good news is, we have the gospel. I think we have the gospel in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to see this. The good news of the king's finished work and the kingdom's fulfilling work. That's another way we could define it. That through the work of Jesus, it is finished. We've got nothing left to prove to anybody. We've got no greater approval to gain because we already have God's. We have no greater comfort and satisfaction to be achieved. And we have no further need to take control of our own destinies and world because we know that we have a king who is sovereign, who is for us, who is good, who is God. And aren't we glad that he gives us his word that comes to call us back again, not to lead us into a, a, a life of with our head hung down in guilt and shame and fear, but a call to lift up our heads for the joy of the Lord is our strength. But in this chapter, we see that we must root our restoration in the true foundations of the kingdom. How do we do that? The first thing we must root our restoration in, this first foundation. And as simple as this seems, I think it it is profound, and we will spend the rest of our lives just trying to believe this, that the fundamental foundation for rebuilding your life is the word of the Lord. It's not just, it's not my word. It's not somebody else's word. It is the word of the Lord. And in these first eight verses, God's people look beyond their words to God's word. Now, how do I believe why do I believe they're looking beyond their words? Notice here, they gather as one man into the square before the water gate. We've probably never experienced anything like this in our lives. This is really like the sign of real revival. All these people, they they haven't brought in the the greatest band in the world or the greatest show, but everybody realizes this great need that they have for God to direct their life. And so probably thousands of people have just assembled and they're all standing there, just wanting God's Word. Back to this image of this attic at the end of their rope. Israel has been here before. And as we read in the story of Israel, it says that what led to, this, to all of this was that these people decided that they're just going to do what was right in their own eyes. They decided that they were going to live their lives like the nations. They decided, God's word does not guide our lives. Thank you very much. I'll come up with the words that guide my life. And it led them to nowhere but destruction and exile. And here they have this chance to restart the same chance we wake up with every morning, the same ch- chance we step into every minute because of the gospel. But the question is, when we step into this rebuilding, this reformation, this renewal, this restoration of our lives, do we step in alone, or do we step in as a church, as MCs, as fight clubs, and do we step and we say, God, you tell us the truth. This is what's taking place. The people unite, and they ask for the Word. They ask for the law. Because the law of God to them was good, it was perfect, it was reviving the soul. The law of God was not restrictions to a free life. The law of God was the pathway to freedom. Because freedom, as the Bible teaches it, and really as experience shows, true freedom is living in concert with your true nature. So if you you want to live free, then you've got to know, well, who really am I? And freedom is, I get to actually live out who I really am. Well, how do I know who I really am and why I really exist? I've got to go to the maker. The creator says what the creation was made for. And this is what they're doing. Tell us, God, we've tried our own ways. We've tried to define ourselves. We've tried to direct ourselves. And however good it was for the moment, it left us empty and exiled. So verse 2, they they come. This guy named Ezra comes into the scene of the story. A whole book about him. Really, in the original Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah were, were considered to be one book. So Ezra the priest comes. The men, not just the men though, but the women and all who could understand are there. So just think you've got kids there. Like everybody's just hungry. Just give us the word. Not so we can be smarter than each other and win debates with each other, but so we can be the people of God you've created us to be in the world. And We notice here it was on the first day of the seventh month. So the best that I can tell in studying this, this was like their New Year's Day. So this is a day of like, this would, have, if, this would be great for a, a preacher to preach on New Year's Day. We're preaching it in, on August 9th. And they, they come together and it's like, we're going to get this thing started again. How are we going to get it started? We're getting it started. The Word of God. And Notice verse 3. He reads from God's Word from early morning until midday. I heard somebody say that I listened to. And, and you guys get sick of a 50 minute message? Right? So early morning to midday, then I get sick of it. <laughs> in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the, notice this last word, in the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. That is they're not just they're not just there. They're attentive. They're attuned. They want the book they want the truth. And so verse 4 tells us here that, that, that this isn't something, though, that's just happened out of the blue. Notice there's this wooden platform, very likely in the history of the church, and there's going to be a couple other things in our text here that help some of Oh, that's why we do that. You know, a lot of churches have a pulpit that's built or a platform. Well, this is probably why. They built this for Ezra, because there's all these people and they, they he they want him to be seen really well and heard really well. And so they build this because they don't want to miss a thing. They don't want to miss a thing. They're prepared. And they're so privileged to hear it. Notice that as he reads as he opens it, they stand. So just imagine this. Some churches do this. I don't maybe we should. I don't know. A lot of up and down. But some Preachers, when they go to preach, they'll say, would you please stand in rever- out of reverence for the reading of God's word? Well, where did that come from? At Nehemiah, chapter 8. But, but notice Ezra didn't tell them to do that. That's what's amazing. I remember being a part of a church one time that was... Oh, I don't need to say that. Anyway, I want to say a little bit. I remember being a part of some churches at some times that are so emotionless, right? And then Lee Greenwood... I'm proud to be an American. And you would have thought the Holy Spirit had invaded the house. Everybody on their feet. Nobody telling them to stand up. That's a whole other topic for another day. But just imagine, these people are here. They're so hungry. They're so ready. This guy, Ezra, has probably preached a hundred sermons in his life. He gets up opens the Bible, and all of a sudden, everybody's just a thousand people. (laughs) For words of life. They're privileged to hear the word of God. So verse 6 tells us that they're participators. And we get some more of this understanding of why certain things maybe happen in the lives of certain churches. So not only will we understand here the pulpit and the standing, but notice verse 6. They're participators. It says... As Ezra read and blessed the great God, the people said, What? Amen. Amen. What does that mean to say amen? It means it, it just means say, I agree. You know that's a biblical thing to do. It's not a, a top church over emotionalistic experience it's just it's biblical it's god's people when they're hearing the word of the lord and they agree with it it's biblical to say amen now i'm not going to force you to do that i'm not going to start going amen if you've ever been in church like that but there's nothing wrong with that it's a biblical thing and notice also what they're doing they're lifting up their hands why do people lift up their hands Again, it's a, way, it's a physical, embodied response of worship that, again, it's just it's acknowledging your agreement. It's, it's signaling with the whole of who you are before the whole of God's people and, and towards the throne of God that, God, yes, I agree. That is good news. Some people have even said it's, and I don't know if this is biblical, it's, I surrender. But it is what the people are doing before the Lord. And it's not during the psalm. Although it's good to do during the song too because we're seeing God's word. It's also during the word, just being preached. And what else do they do? They bow their heads. Why do people bow their heads sometimes? Well, here we go. It's a sign of reverence. It's a sign of acknowledgement. It's a sign of, it's a posture of, of, of worship. Because it says, And they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then in verses 7 and 8, we see that this is not merely some putting on a show. Like, oh, a crowd's here. Maybe they'll see and think that I really care more than daily. No, notice these Levites fan out. They want to know what God's Word really means. In, in some instances here, some people think they may some of these, due to language issues, might have needed better translation and the Levites could have given it. But they also needed a better interpretation. They needed the sense. What does this mean? what does this mean for my life? And a lot of this is, again, in the history of the church is why we have preaching like we have here that we call expositional preaching or expository preaching. The goal is to read the Word and then to give people the sense of the Word, to clarify it, to interpret it with the goal that they can understand it. And I I have a whole other sermon prepared on this for another time, but I need to say this into our postmodern context, particularly for our students who are going to be coming back and who may be watching this. Guess what? The assumption of the Bible is you can understand it. That language is not a, a did not come from the fall. Language is not a, a necessarily tainted way of communication that you could say, oh, uh, well, nobody can really understand anything. Who are we to think that God could speak and that we could read truth that would be true of all times and all places and all cultures? The response is this this is this is how God tells us we can. And again, all your questions about circular reasoning around that, I'd love to answer in another setting, but just think about the assumptions that are given here. That someone can stand up and declare the word, people can understand it. It is amazing. And it's not just amazing because of the philosophical assumptions behind it. It's amazing because people need the truth. And Jesus said, It's only the truth that will set people free. They have been living lives in literal captivity and living lives in metaphorical captivity. And they need God's word because they know their words don't work. When Cassie and I just got married early on, and we lived in all, we've lived in too many places, and we've had uh, to buy, a lot of times, this really cheap furniture that you have to put together with these dowels and all this stuff, and if you bend it t- too hard, you're not supposed to bend it, but because of what I'm about to say, you'll see why, it'll break. As I remember one time, as best that I can in our experience, trying to do this together, Cassie would tell you, if you want to see ways that you can disciple my heart, just come and watch us try to work together. Uh, And one time as we were doing this, I just remember looking down at the instructions, and we're trying to put together this shelf or whatever it is, and it's like they put the wrong directions in the box. It's like, are you serious? You're going to, like, cause me to get a divorce, or... My wife to hit me, because we're trying to put this thing together and we don't got the right set of directions, the right set of instructions. It's hard enough to do this stuff in the first place, But now trying to do it with the wrong instructions, the wrong voice, the wrong words just wrecks everything. This is true of our lives. It's true of what we see here. Life is hard enough already. We live in a fallen world where we have real enemies a real flesh and 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 an uncooperative now cursed creation to deal with. And if on top of that, we come in and say, I'm going to make up the rules. I'm going to decide what's right. I'm going to decide what's wrong. I'm going to decide what steps to take. Then yes, everything will fall apart. It's just not going to work because what works it's what is worship. There's always one clear sign that someone is serious about change. That somebody really wants to rebuild their life. And that's when they've humbled themselves to the point of laying down their defenses and laying down their self-authorized prerogative. Understand this, is really important to define things. the end of the day, if we say, I get to set the terms of the conversation, I get to define the foundations, then we have not yet got to where these people were in Nehemiah chapter 8. For them, there's no more you buts, there's no more but thems, there's no more you don't understand's, there's no more I've already tried that, there's just all I know is my way doesn't work. And I want God's way. Israel is coming like this addict that's lost it all and is just getting back and knows doing what is wrong right in my own eyes is a dead end street. If we want to restore our lives, if we want to renew our homes, our hearts, and our churches, then the foundation must be the word of the Lord. We can't yawn on this. Because all of us in here believe that there's alternative pathways to freedom. And that's what this is all about. What do you think is your pathway to freedom? And again, freedom. I get to live the life I was created to live. Whose words determining that in your life right now? When it's God's words, like for Israel, it becomes a priority. Everyone in here has time. That's a hard thing to say and a hard thing to hear. But there's time for this when it's a priority. There's time to scroll on social media. That's, that's, that's hearing a word. There's time to take up hobbies. There's, there's time to plan vacations. There's time, there's time. When we have that time, then do we come into the word of the Lord as a people who are present or a people who are performing? Man, i got to hurry up and get these questions answered before I get to Fight Club. I better do this because I don't want to feel guilty later on tonight. I just sleep better when I've read my Bible because I don't feel guilty because I did a religious performance. Or am I present? here to meet with you God because being a people who build their lives on the foundation of the word it's not really first of all about self-discipline it's about desperation it's about dependence not discipline it's saying like "I, I really need this I will wreck my day if I do it in my own power and under my own authority I will hurt people It's about a privilege. I remember that, that video i probably shared with some of you before of that tribe that's receiving God's word in their own language for the first time. And you can just see them. I love it. I should play it, but I'm, I'm not that well prepared. They're just standing there and this plane comes over the horizon. And as they see that plane crossing over the mountain, they know it has the word of God in their own language for the first time. And they start dancing and singing, and when that plane hits the ground, and that door opens, and those missionaries come out with those Bibles, you would think that they would have been pallets of gold. And I spend more time scrolling just to find something to watch on Netflix sometimes, some days than I do actually rejoicing over the Word of God. See, I'm thankful for our church and that we, we are very imperfect. That we're trying. This is, this is the heart and the goal of a lot of what we're talking about in our fight clubs. Val and I had a great exchange over this earlier this week. That, that the goal of fight clubs is not for people to come and receive a lecture. The goal of fight clubs is for people to come together and to ask, what is God's word saying in our lives and to our hearts? How can we be trained to do that through that meeting to go then into our everyday lives and ask that? So that when somebody's by their self at 1 a.m. on a Friday night and every temptation in the world is coming against them, is that they know how to come before the Lord and say, What do you have for me now? That's the foundation for restoration. But it's not just the word of the Lord, but we need to move forward here to verses nine through twelve. It's to the joy of the Lord. So ever as important as the foundation for rebuilding and restoring our lives and having true renewal that the Word of the Lord is, the joy of the Lord is inseparable. God's people in verses 9 through 12 are called to move beyond regret to rejoicing. I got It's got to be so clear to us. You will not really change unless you have more than regret, but you actually rejoice in God's Word. If all you do is tolerate the truth and not delight in it, the pressures of the world and the flesh of the devil will be too much for you. It will not last if you tolerate the truth and you don't celebrate it. The people's response in verse 9 is to weep. Now why are they weeping? Most likely because they're hearing all this stuff that they've not done. And they're, they're realizing, oh wow, this is why we've been in exile. This is why our lives have been wrecked. And so they're weeping. It's a proper response to be convicted of our sin. And next week in Nehemiah chapter 9 we'll take a whole week to look at Nehemiah leading the people in these great prayers of repentance. But in verses 9 and 10 we see here that this was not the appropriate response. This really struck me as I read this. And there are two reasons why they tell them stop grieving, stop mourning, stop, we- stop weeping and start rejoicing. Two very surprising reasons, at least one is surprising. The first one is don't don't weep, but rejoice because this day is holy to the Lord. I want to ask you this. When you hear the word holiness, do you think the word joy? So what is it it called, a Rorschach test or whatever, these psychological things, where they pop up words and you say the first word that comes to your mind. When the word holiness pops up, the first word that should pop up is joy. This is why churches have very little missional impact, among many other reasons, is because when the world thinks of holiness, they don't think joy. <laughs> and the world doesn't think joy when it thinks holiness because the church doesn't think joy when it thinks holiness. When we think holiness, we probably imagine the most grumpy person in the world that we could imagine. We think holiness, we think of, of beating our heads up because we're bad people. When we think holiness, we may think of a God who is distant, who is uncaring, who is critical, who is condemning, and who wants us to look at our lives and to rid itself of all pleasure. But notice, don't mourn or weep. Why? Because this day's holy. And holy people are rejoicing people. This is so convicting to me. Yes, we're called to mourn. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Yes, we're called to weep. Paul says, weep with those who weep. Yes, we're called to grieve. But we're not to grieve as those who do not have hope. And although mourning and weeping and grieving and lamenting are a part of the discipleship process, we've seen it in Nehemiah, we talked about it in chapter 1, we'll talk about it next week, the loudest note for the holy people of God should be the sound of joy. So he says in verse 10 the joy of the Lord is your strength wow I've been so convicted by this this week in my home often what I bring into it is an added slice of anxiety and stress and then often in my life I try to harness my anxiety and fear and guilt and shame for strength and I bet you do too. Some of us, this is just how we've lived our lives, right? It's, it's kind of worked, right? That how we get things done, is we, it's, that's what gets our motor running. But what the word of the Lord is saying here, if we want to really change and we want to really be restored and we really want to be the people of God, then we've got to start running on something else. And it's called the joy of the Lord. That's got to be the gas in our tank. The joy of the Lord, two sides of the same coin. First thing, the joy of the Lord is His joy. It's His joy. The Bible says that, that God is immutable. The fancy word is He doesn't change. The other fancy word is impassable. Which doesn't mean that we don't have a God who experiences and relates with us in our hurts and pains. But is a God ultimately whom we cannot hurt. That is such good news. It has to be very hard for my children and my wife to come home and think some days what moods Dad going to be in. But Think about this. Guess what the mood God's going to be in when you come to Him? It's not changing. It's perfect. He's the perfect Father. And His joy gives us strength. But it's also the joy of the Lord, the other side of that coin, in the sense that it's the joy that we experience in and through Him. It's not the joy that He is, which we just said. It's also the joy that He gives. And the leader's role we see here in verses 11 and 12 is to guide the people into that, to calm the people. This is what it means a lot to be a disciple maker. It's to, is to be someone who helps people move from grief to joy. All the people went their way and they rejoiced. And why? Not because they were told to have the power of positive thinking. Not because this was their best life now. But because they understood the words that were declared to them. The joy of the Lord is flowing out of the word of the Lord. And so even though they're looking around and they got this empty city, it's like we bought the house but we can't afford furniture. We bought the house, but nobody wants to live with us. It look, doesn't look good, but they've got God's word, and they've got God's joy. I've been trying to help my brother and dad recently build an outbuilding for us, and anybody that knows anything would know I'm doing little to nothing except like handing stuff or putting a screw in with very specific direction. But at one point, we have a level that we're using, and it's not a... a what good is a level that's bent? But anyway, this one's kind of bent, and they use it. So if you know anything about buildings, that probably explains why it's not square, whatever that means. But I noticed I'm trying to to draw this line, to make this level cut, and I just kept getting so frustrated because every time I would move this side, this side would move. And it was like, you're thinking, well, that's obvious. But anyway, for me, it was just so frustrating to get it to where these lines actually matched up. And I think the exact same thing is true here for the anxiety and the, the anger and the, the fleshly reactions that we have in our life to so many things is what I want to call here sort of the rule of the tether. And what I mean tether is what it's connected to. So, so think think about it this way. If your joy is whatever your joy is tethered to, when that moves, your joy moves. So here, here's my joy and here's whatever it's connected to. And... Because it's connected to this, when this goes up, my joy goes down. So I want us to all think right now in our own hearts and heads, what, what's our joy connected to? We will only be as strong as that. Some of you want to give up probably. Some of you may think joy is a joke. Maybe even the joy of the Lord. But you will not ever experience it until your heart is tethered to the joy of the Lord. Think of it this way. Some of you have rooted your joy in something or someone else. For some of you, it's your children's joy. So if here it is. If my children don't have joy, then I can't have joy. For some of you, it's a friend's joy. So if, if, if Tim, man, if he doesn't like me or he doesn't have joy, then guess what? I won't have joy. Some of you, it's your spouse. You come in in a good mood. They're in a bad mood. Now you're in a bad mood. Why? Because your joy is tethered to them. For some of you, it's your boss at work. For some of you, it's your parents, your kids. And you're like, man, I'm having a good day. I'm feeling great in the Lord. And then your parents are in a bad mood. So guess what now? Well, I guess I have to be. Your joy is rooted in these other things. Your joy is rooted in your paycheck. Your joy is rooted in your performance. Wow, I'm having a great day, but man, I I forgot to read my Bible. You've made some other person's joy the foundation for your joy. And it's flimsy. And what God is offering us is His joy. If we don't get this, we will not follow Jesus for the long haul. Because just, we're, so, we're going to be tethered to all these other things. And everybody else's responses, everybody else's moods, everybody else's emotions, they just are pulling our strings everywhere we go. And responding in this way, that the joy of the Lord is my strength, it doesn't mean that I'm now insensitive. It now means I'm actually free to love people. I'm free to Listen. I'm free to be present. It's a powerful thing. Joy is not icing on the cake. We're seeing here joy is the engine for a life of persevering mission and discipleship. Well, how could they have this joy? Well, they could have this joy because ten days later, a part of this season of feasting and holidays was going to be an event known as the Day of Atonement. How could Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites have the audacity to look at these people who have wrecked everything? Literally, wrecked it all. You've got the promised land, and you wrecked it. You, you rebelled against God, and you were taken into exile to the point, at certain points of this, you were having to boil your kids and eat them because you didn't have any food. Eat your kids back. New level. Bull and babies. Shouldn't joke about that. But it was that bad. So how do you look at the people who had to bull babies to deal with the consequences of their sin and say, get your head up and rejoice? It's because you know that God, through His grace, provides a sacrifice for your your sins. This is what they know, and we're going to see this coming. This is why... These dates are put here, and this is why ultimately we move to the last foundation that we find in our text, that not only if we want to restore ourselves, we root ourselves in the foundation of the authority of the Word of God, we root ourselves in the joy of the Lord our God, but the last one is we have to root our restoration in the foundation of the reenacted redemption of the Lord. God's people are given a ritual to remember the road, the long, hard road of restoration and redemption. Verses 13 and 14. On the next day, some more of these leaders come together, and they want to study more. Hey, we had a great day yesterday, they said, but let's learn more. Let's really do this. And they find out that, guess what? We're in the Feast of Booths. Or the Feast of Tabernacles. Now if you ever might have thought how in the world is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles relevant to 21st century Christians in Cleveland, Tennessee, we're getting to find out. And this is what's great about God's Word. They would build these roofs, verse 15 and 16, if we look a little further and I'm trying to speed up. What they would do is this festival of booths was so that they never forgot how God provided for them in those really hard years of being in the wilderness. And they weren't just told, hey, guys, believe that God, remember, they weren't just told to remember. Remember God provided for you in those long, hard years in the wilderness. But they're called to reenact it. And so the way they're called to reenact it is they're called to build those, those, those little houses, those little booths, those little tabernacles like they would have lived in. So if you're like me, one of my favorite things growing up was to build tents in the living room was to get out sheets, whether my mom wanted me to or not, and clothespins, and make these forts. So this is God telling them, what I want you to do is I want you to go out and I want you to just, just build these things everywhere, these little shanties. So we're, they're building them on their roofs of their house, they're building them out in the courts, and they're going to like live in these things for a week. And why are they doing it? Not so that they can just have some fun. Remember, they've they're weighed down with guilt and shame and fear here. What's gonna happen? It's so that they like can they can feel it in their bones. God brought our, God brought our family through the wilderness. He redeemed them. And then he didn't leave them in that long, hard journey. Because the Exodus was one thing, but now you got the wilderness. Getting these walls rebuilt and being brought back to the land for the people of Israel at this time, it was one thing, but now you've got to live the stuff out. That's a hard thing. And so God says, i prepared this ritual, this feast, this week, where you are going to have to reenact the fact that I take care of you when you're having to live in a hut on top of a roof <laughs> or in the middle of nowhere. Verse 18 says, every day they they came back to this. Verse 17, they were rejoicing because they really hadn't did this since, since back then. As I thought of this, I thought of a kid. As a kid, I would go down to Osaka, Georgia, and we would see Civil War reenactments. At the time, I probably thought it was just cool to see people dressing up and blowing up junk. But I looked into this. My first thought was, is this controversial in our current cultural climate? But it looks like it's something that's been done all throughout our nation and even back into the time of the Civil War. And I found a Washington Post article that was trying to to deal with that issue. And it said this, Civil War reenactments are as old as the war itself. The first reenactments are recorded back as far as 1861, which if, if you don't know, that was early on in the war, very early. They were a bloodless form of theater referred to as sham battles, they said which served multiple purpose to recruit new soldiers, to entertain audience, but ultimately to give people a sense of what their loved ones were experiencing on the front lines. The article goes on to say, "...since those days, reenactments have grown in scale, and instead of providing relief to the people whose lives would be changed irreparably by the war, the stage battles became a form of living history. In every part of the country," this article said, "...almost every weekend of the year, participants push aside historic dates and names and instead concentrate on a different kind of learning. How a soldier felt charging across grass in the battle. Down to what he ate at the campfire, campfire before being forced to sleep on the hard earthen floor. Similar here to what we're seeing. and then This is from Samson Moore, a 17-year-old from Michigan says, while his friends are drawn into worlds of phones and video games, he wanted a hands-on experience with history, which he discovered as a passion in the eighth grade. So he spent $2,000 on a union outfit and gunpowder. But he said it was all worth it because you feel actually closer to the soldier who fought. Now, what this is built upon, whatever anybody's opinion on Civil War reenactments, It's not just so old people get to play dress-up. It's this notion that human beings learn stuff by more than just digesting information into our brains. As James Smith has said, humans aren't brains on a stick. We're embodied people who've had real experiences in this world that shape us in powerful ways. It's one thing to read about canon's. It's another thing to stand beside one and have that noise going off in your head and to think straight. It's another thing to read of people having legs amputated. It's another thing to stand in a tent while everybody's having their leg amputated. It's one thing to read of the thousands of people that died. It's another thing to stand on a field and see your brothers and friends falling dead while you try to survive. What in the world does this have to do with the Feast of Booths? It has everything. God wants them to go back so that they can go forward. They are facing insurmountable odds to be the people of God in the world at this point. And God wants them to not just know it in their heads, but to know it in the whole of who they are. I'm with you. I was with you then. It wasn't easy, but we made it. We must root our restoration in a reacted redemption of the Lord. And I'm not talking about us forming a drama ministry. Although Tim may have that high on his priorities. That's a joke. But I am saying that in the history of redemption, God has always given His people embodied reenactments of redemption that are essential for our restoration. They're building booths here. They'll set up stones. We sang that Come Thou found earlier, and if you don't know what it means to say, here I raise my Ebenezer, it, it's the story in the scriptures of where they set this stone up that reminded them that God had been faithful. And every time they would see that rock, they would be reminded of the God who was their rock. The same is true for us. Every person in here has been and is being discipled by so much more than what you read. You've been discipled from a young child to believe certain things are true that you might not believe on a test. Do you realize that reading a book is not usually going to beat that? It's living it out. So what do we have? Are we supposed to go out from here today and set up tents on our roof? No, we have have something though that shows us this. And it's sad how we miss it a lot of times in the church. Jesus has given us a reenactment ritual of our redemption that he's commanded us to partake in regularly. And it is not an asterisk to what it means to be the people of God. He wants us to come and taste the bread. To drink the cup. Not as something you do on a Sunday morning, but something that touches every part of your life. He wants you to take that bread and that cup, and He wants you to walk back into your past walk into your present, and walk into your future. He wants you to go speak to yourself, maybe as a child, or yourself maybe in the future, and He wants you to hear these words. I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He wants you to go back to that sin that you committed you wouldn't want nobody to know, or that sin you're so ashamed of because you know everybody knows it. And He wants you to take that bread and that cup, and He wants you to... He wants you to hear, this is my new covenant in my blood for you. For you. He wants you to take that into your future that you're so afraid of, and He wants you to to taste it. I've given myself for you. I, I would not die on the cross for you and then leave you in the future. We take the bread, we take the cup, we remember our sufferings, but we remember the cross and resurrection. We remember our sins, but we remember the cross and resurrection. We remember our enemies, we remember a real and personal Satan, but we remember his victory. And then out of that, we go into our everyday lives with good news to people. Hey, I know it's bad, but let me tell you about someone who's good. when we root our restoration in the word of God and the joy of the Lord and in the finished work of Christ, then we can actually rebuild our lives. No matter how bad it was, no matter how bad it is, and no matter how bad it gets. We must root our restoration in these true foundations of renewal. Father, we thank you for the good news that is ours in Jesus' name. We pray, God, just as Israel celebrated that Feast of Booths and remembered how you had redeemed them and then you had carried them through the long, hard years and to the final fulfillment of those promises, may as we come to your table now remember it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, some of us are together, and we hope in coming weeks, if not next week, all of us will be together. But at this time, we want to partake of the Lord's table. I've already mentioned here why we believe this is so important. Jesus commanded us to do it. He didn't command us to do it, just like the book of the law didn't give us commands so that we would just ch- check off the list, but because this is the pathway to freedom. Before we come to the table, and those of us who are here will, and if you're not with us, we just pray that you would participate, just through being a participant in a time of reflection. Ask yourselves these questions. Am I a follower of Jesus? The good news today is, is that you if you've become aware of your need for a Savior, that there is one in Jesus. That however great your sin, he is a better Savior. All you need to do is just confess. I've got nothing but I need you to pay for my sin to give me a new life and to trust him as your new Lord for others of us we may need to reconcile with someone the bread and the cup tell us not only that we've become one with Christ but we've become one with his people and that to the extent that we would enjoy the fullness of life is not through simply an individual relationship with him but through a unified relationship with his body Lastly, am I at peace with a sinful action or desire in my life? Again, oftentimes we think that these sins are, are freedom. But Jesus is calling us now to come back to Him and to take the bread in the cup today, trusting that His way is the way to life and freedom. If everyone now would just close their eyes for a second. We want to to pause and reflect before we circle up around the tables or we take a moment at home and just ask, what idols do we need to bring to these foundations? What wounds do we need to bring to the table and to these foundations we've heard today? What lies do we need to bring to the table? Father, we thank you now for the good news that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the promises of the new covenant, that we are fully forgiven in Christ alone, not through our works, and that we are fully given the presence of the Spirit to live out your life, not through our own power, but through his. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, those who are here, we have a couple tables set up back here for you to circle up around. I know we haven't did this in a while, but we're going to just take a moment to share. And uh, once it gets quiet, someone will be there to lead you in taking the bread and the cup, and then we will come back and sing and be sent. And if you're watching from home, you can. Uh, I just encourage you to take this time to, to pray and reflect on these things as well.